Welcome to Teaching Artist Podcast, a show dedicated to discussions of teaching art to kids, making art, and how those things overlap and feed each other. I'm Rebecca Potts, your host, a visual arts teaching artist. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've gotten some rest this summer and made time for your own creativity. I am definitely feeling the apprehension as we gear up for another school year. Right now, it's looking like my daughter and I will both be in school in person, but with masks required. Although California and Los Angeles are pretty strict about COVID precautions, I am still worried. If you're feeling nervous, just know that you're not alone. Now, I have a great episode for you with Tim Needles, who is the author of Steam Power, a high school art teacher and an artist working in many media. First, I want to share some exciting events coming up. The Art Educators Lounge is a community meeting monthly, which I facilitate with the lovely Victoria Fry of Visionary Art Collective. We usually meet on the last Saturday of each month at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. We alternate between free community meetings and paid guest speaker workshops. Our last community meeting featured mini artist talks by several amazing artists and was such an inspiring time of connection. We heard from Sarah Fitzgerald, Yvonne Kunz, Jyoti Gupta, Jen McGowan, Amy Sones, and Yulvia Asal. There was so much interest in these artist talk sessions that we opened up an extra August session for next weekend, August 14th. We would love to have you join us and hear from some really fantastic artists. I'll leave the registration link in the show notes, and you can also always find those links at arteducatorslounge.eventbrite.com. Now, we also have our regularly scheduled meeting on August 28th, which will be a workshop led by the wonderful artist and accountant, Hannah Cole. Again, you can join us by registering at arteducatorslounge.eventbrite.com. Have you wondered, what can I deduct? Do I bring receipts to my accountant? Is my art a business or a hobby? What is a Schedule C? How do I deduct my home studio? Why do freelancers have to pay taxes quarterly? And how do I do that? If you've wondered any of that, this workshop is for you. Hannah Cole is a tax expert who specializes in working with creative businesses and artists. A longtime working artist with a high-level exhibition history and a tax and money columnist for the art blog Hyperallergic, the financial challenges of freelancers and small creative businesses are both relevant and personal to Hannah. She will discuss basic tax equation, self-employment tax and the estimated quarterly tax system, audit concerns for the creative person, and other tax issues specifically relevant to artists and makers, followed by a question and answer period. And I've spoken with Hannah about really focusing down on artists who also teach. So if you're getting part or most of your income from teaching, she'll be able to touch on your concerns. Hannah Cole is the founder of Sunlight Tax, which specializes in friendly, informative tax preparation for artists and engaging art world savvy tax education workshops for artist groups. Join us with Hannah on August 28th by registering at arteducatorslounge.eventbrite.com. Each week, I'm sharing a featured artist as well as a guest interview. I'll share a bit about the featured artist here and share images of their artwork on Instagram and on the website at teachingartistpodcast.com. This week's featured artist is Terrence Thompson. Terrence is a multidisciplinary artist based in New Jersey. He makes mixed media paintings and installation work. He grew up in South Jersey and went to college in Philadelphia at the University of the Arts, majoring in multidisciplinary practices with an emphasis in painting and minoring in art education. Terence loves the art-making process, 
the power of using different fabrics and materials to help convey an idea or message. He says, My work is simply about race, and my only goal for my art besides healing and self-expression is to change a mind or two. Terence's work focuses on the repression of what it actually means to be Black in America today. He started out creating these mobiles that began a conversation about slavery and the education about it at a very young age. The mobiles consisted of depictions of lynchings and wounded figures positioned in a whimsical and childlike environment. This work was made to show the importance of teaching young black kids of the world they live in to prepare them, while on the other hand showing the unfairness and adultification of these kids just to protect them. As his work evolves, so does this yearning for a happy ending, or at least a better one. It does seem like a never-ending battle. One thing he has personally felt that has and can help is self-exploration and expression. The main symbol he keeps coming back to is the black bird, powerful, free, and never looking back. He often uses the black bird to express this breaking free, rising to a higher ground, leaving the bruised and abused shell behind. Ultimately, we find our oneness, our strength and beauty in our individuality, no matter what the world thinks or does to us. Tarrant shows this by creating personalized portraits to show the world that we're beautiful and we matter. When creating his work, four things ring dear to him. Texture, color, patterns, and found domestic items. He uses household items like baking soda, tablecloths, mats, tapes, gift wrap, mops, and napkins. He started using these items because they brought him a sense of home, a sense of his past, which is where this all started. He says, in the end, I would hope that by growing in our oneness, we can value our differences and grow in our togetherness. And to see some of his work, you can check out our blog at teachingartistpodcast.com or make sure you're following us on Instagram at teachingartistpodcast. And if you would like to submit your work to be featured, you can do that on our website at teachingartistpodcast.com slash opportunities. Tim Needles spoke about infusing new technologies into his artwork, as well as his teaching. He talked about how he's always worked in a variety of media and how teaching really contributes to this tendency as he teaches everything from painting to photography to design, weaving in augmented reality and virtual reality. He also shared a bit about writing steam power and speaking with scientists who affirmed the need for art to be included when talking about STEM in education. Art is not simply an addition tacked onto STEM, but a critical part of the processes and systems used in real-world scenarios. Tim also talked about breaking into the art world and working outside it. He works both as an artist and with his students to engage his local community and use art as a communication tool. His advice around working in a conservative community and bringing up issues of equity and empathy was so helpful. Being able and willing as an educator to share your vulnerabilities and truly be yourself can make such a difference. Tim Needles is an artist, educator, and author of STEAM Power, Infusing Art into Your STEM Curriculum. He teaches art and media at Smithtown School District, is a TEDx talk speaker, and his work has been featured on NPR in the New York Times, Columbus Museum of Art, Norman Rockwell Museum, Alexandria Museum of Art, Katona Museum of Art, and Cape Cod Museum of Art. He's the recipient of ISTE's Technology in Action Award and Creativity Award, NAEA's Eastern Region Art Educator Award and AET Outstanding Teaching Award, and the Rauschenberg Power of Art Award. He's a National Geographic Certified Teacher, PBS Digital Innovator, a NASA Solar System Ambassador, an ISTE Arts and Technology and STEM PLN Leader, NAEA Art Ed Tech Interest Group Leader, and Adobe Creative Educator and Education Leader Emeritus. 
He's active on social media at Tim Needles. Ooh, very impressive. Let's hear from Tim. I am talking with Tim Needles today, and I always start with a bit of background. Could you talk us through your story? How did you become an artist and a teacher? Sure. Thank you. Well, you know, I became an artist before I was really even aware of it. In elementary school, I just really gravitated towards the arts. Mm -hmm. Growing up, I was really into music and I really loved album covers. And that was my main source of art at the time. So, you know, the first artist that I really was aware of was Andy Warhol because he had Mm. worked on so many album covers. And I kind of became enamored with his work and My memories of elementary school are really memories of art because that was the experiences that were important to me. So I I found that I gravitated Mm -hmm. towards that. But I was lucky enough to have some teachers that supported that and supported the importance of art and design. You know, so I had an elementary school teacher that brought me aside for a special project where we worked on building a set for a play about Abe Lincoln. And I just found I, I was totally engaged and really interested. And that was sort of my first experience of working on a design really intentionally. And throughout my entire experience, it wasn't until later that I realized that most of my best memories of school were from the arts. And there's that period in middle school where there was sort of like art disappeared in my life that you didn't have those classes any longer. And that was really a struggle. I found that it was important to me emotionally, as well as in a creative way. So in high school, I really focused on the arts and was aware, you know, it's lucky to have that opportunity to understand what you really love early on in life. And, you know, I certainly help try to turn students on to that as a teacher now, when you see people that are really enamored with making and creating. And I was lucky enough to have that experience. So I knew I wanted to be an artist really young, just because, you know, my dad was a landscaper, and I understood what manual labor meant. And I was (laughs) outside, you know, doing work. And it's like, it's nice, you have lots of time to think. And it's certainly a way to make money. But if you could take the thing you're passionate about, and and do that full time in some way, that was really what I was always after. And Mm -hmm. I certainly always respected teaching because teachers meant so much to me. So, you know, becoming an artist and teacher was a real opportunity. I had the opportunity to go to art school. I went to School of Visual Arts in New York City. Mm -hmm. And I had some amazing teachers who were all artists. And, you know, that idea of an artist teacher was something that just really appealed to me. They were doing important work and sharing their process. And even though I teach in high school, I I still sort of model myself after that same artist teacher mentality where I see myself as an artist who happens to teach rather than Mm -hmm. a teacher who also does art. Right. Yeah. I love that way of putting it. Like you're an artist who just happens to also be a teacher. Right. Yeah. And I think about that a lot too, even at any age level, like I'm teaching mostly elementary now and I still think about myself as an artist first. Yeah. I guess maybe it's the order you put things in. Yeah. You know, it's funny. One thing I've learned is that I've got and older is the way you're introduced to something really has a Mm. big influence on the way you think about it. Mm -hmm. And there's something that's magical in elementary school because really everyone's an artist and and no one's afraid of art at all, Yeah, especially early on. So I love working with elementary students because they're so fully involved and engaged in what they're doing. And, you know, there's never any wondering. I I work in high school, so there's a lot more of a cerebral barrier sometimes to Mm. engage students, which could be a little bit more difficult. I'm up for the challenge, but there is something really nice about working with elementary students that are just all on the table. Yeah, so enthusiastic. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So you went to SVA and did you study art education as well there? Or did that come later? I, I did, yeah. So, yeah. you know, one, one of the issues with art school is they said it, they wanted you to have a major. And mm-hmm. as an artist, I, I didn't really want to limit myself. I always looked up to people like Robert mm-hmm. Rauschenberg that just did lots of different things. So mm-hmm. I would change my major and sign up for classes and then change my major and sign up for other <laughs> classes. So I, I majored in photography, but then I wanted to take painting classes because I love painting. So I mm-hmm. would switch it to painting. And, and then they had a really nice art education program that allowed me to work as a teaching artist at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which was fantastic. Yeah. So they had a really terrific program. And that's where I started my art education career as well. Amazing. You're totally after my own heart with switching the materials all the time. And, you know, it feels like there's so many contemporary artists that work that way. They're not sort of boxed into one material or one media. 
Yeah, you know, it's such a pleasant change, actually, because for years and years, we were always shown these artists that worked, you know, Roy Lichtenstein had so many works that really were similar. And then you you find out that he did experiment quite a bit that, you know, Mm. maybe you didn't see them all. But, you know, contemporary artists like Ai Weiwei or or people like that, they're working in all these different media and it's commonplace Mm -hmm. these days. But I feel like it's much more natural to being an artist to Mm want to make those creative leaps and risks and do something different. And our world has so many emerging media. It's crazy not to experiment and play. Yeah. And speaking of emerging media, I know you're working with a lot of technology. Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I always really enjoyed working with different technologies. Even from when I was in School of Visual Arts, I remember having a painting class with uh, my teacher was Marilyn Minter, who has since become a notable artist. She was a really great teacher because she was so honest. And I was working in these big abstract paintings, and she was kind of always pushing me in a different direction. And then, you know, for my final show, I, I brought in some of my photography work, which was these seven-foot billboards that I had printed of my mm. own photographs. And they were highly pixelated, and I had drawn over them. And she's like, well, this is so much more interesting. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're, <laughs> you're doing something that's really innovative here. You should Mm. engage more in this. And even from like, that was using Photoshop one at the time, which I had to teach myself. (laughs) And I I sort of just understood, thanks to many artist friends, I had this love for this traditional art, but my heart kind of lies more in experimentation and playing with different media. So these Mm -hmm. days, I'm currently working with a lot of augmented and virtual reality. And it's great to bring some of these technologies into the classroom and let students play with them. And you know, certainly video is something I've worked a lot with over the years and things like glitching and different ways of using video and even sort of like merging the world of performing art with fine art and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So if, if there's a different medium out there, I always like to try it and see what I could make with it. And that's one of the joys of being an artist is just playing and creating with these different materials. And I find that when you don't know what you're doing exactly, and when you don't understand a technology, you have this enormous freedom to mm. kind of make your own way. It might not be the correct method of using that technology, but it's an opportunity to create something new in a way that's never existed before. And that's exciting. Yeah, there's something about not knowing the rules lets you completely break them. Yeah. And I tell students all the time, when you come into the art class, you're not expected to know anything, you know, so like, allow yourself to fail huge, just play and experiment and put it out there because you know, you're not going to be judged in that way. And I want students to really engage deeply and not have any fear about it. Mm -hmm. And there's such a great power of not knowing what you're doing where you're able to potentially do something unique. Yeah, there's so much power in that. And do you feel like, I guess you've talked about this a little bit already, just how your teaching informs your art making and then vice versa, your art making kind of informs your teaching? Yeah, you know, there's a great ability as a teacher, especially I teach in a public high school on Long Island Mm -hmm. and my classes switch all the time. So I end up teaching a little bit of everything, which means playing a little bit of everything. So I think as an artist, I was sort of taught to stay in one lane. And as a teacher, that's Mm. totally impossible. (laughs) So it's nice to embrace working in different media and engaging with students who are taking some of those creative risks is always interesting. And I really like to work with students as collaborators in my class. Mm. I still sort of approach it in a different mentality uh, where we're all on the same page and we're exploring together. So it allows for a sense of ownership that they have. And I continue working with them after they graduate and they go to art school often and they'll keep in touch. And Mm -hmm. it's nice to have that loop of former students sort of informing the current ones and myself about, you know, what's going on in the art world in different places and and in different ways. Yeah, that must be a great way to stay connected. I feel like when you're in an art school, you're always learning and soaking up what's going on, what's current in the art world, and just really exposed to lots of artists who are teachers or mentors or visiting artists at universities. So keeping that connection with students must be really helpful. Yeah, no, it's terrific. And I I think a lot of the art schools are really great too, in that they've, especially since the pandemic, they've opened their doors in a way that they haven't before. So we've been invited to participate in college classes with my AP art class. So you have a much better sense of what college 
is like and what that experience mm-hmm. is like as that sort of collaborator mentality, you know, we're all in it together, learning together. Mm. And it's just so much more informed. And I think that it is a tremendous help to students for sure to get that. But also as a teacher, you stay so current in what's mm-hmm. happening in the world. I think that really helps. Yeah. And could you talk a little bit about what your teaching situation is now and how has it been throughout this pandemic? Yeah, no, it's been really interesting. So I've been teaching at the same school for 22 years. Mm-hmm. You know, I started teaching almost primarily video and film and then started doing some more fine arts and a little bit of 3D. So I've ended up doing everything. And then, of course, uh, the pandemic was sort of a shock to the system for everyone, I think. Mm-hmm. But being familiar with technology, it was probably a little bit easier for me. I found that the biggest challenge was getting that sense of connection with students, you know, that personal connection. I think without that, you really can't elevate the teaching to anything that's really interesting. And I think, you know, I focused just solely on creativity and social emotional learning for a little while, Mm -hmm. because I think we were all going through quite a bit emotionally and needed to vent and just be creative. And I found it to be really an important period of time that first couple of months after the pandemic hit in New York, you know, grades didn't matter any longer. And it was sort Mm -hmm. of like an opportunity to experiment in ways that I would never have the license to do otherwise. You know, we, we had done the Getty Challenge together as a class where we created works from famous museums using things around the house. And I found that that was a really informative experience that really focused on creativity. And I I took that as a model and started just making my own creative challenges each week that students would Mm -hmm. do together. And it wasn't so much about the results. It was more about the process and really uh, celebrating the creative choices that different students made. Mm -hmm. And it was just such a nice change that I kept it and continue doing it now because I found that, you know, it engaged students in a way that other work didn't. And it was nice to focus entirely on the creative choices that students were making and to sort of elevate creativity in that kind of way. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to work with kids. I feel like really focusing on like what decisions are you making? What choices are you making? Yeah, Um, I think that one of the biggest things that is an issue in schools is that some of the things that we know are important, like creativity and innovation, are, are not assessed in mm-hmm. the grading system. So it's important to really highlight that. And when students make these creative choices to make sure that you promote and share out those experiences so that you show how important they are. And now are things becoming back to like grades matter again? And <laughs> thinking about you just talked about how that focus on creativity and innovation is not assessed or not assessed well. Are you thinking about how to do that? Like, how would I assess this process of coming up with ideas and and making decisions as an artist? I think we're at a funny point now. I mean, we're fully back in person. So Mm -hmm. there's this idea, which I totally understand, of getting back to normal right? that people have. That is totally unrealistic. There's no normal. Yeah. It's a crazy idea. And, you know, I'm not even interested in going back to normal. I mean, it it was a romantic idea that I understand, but, you know, it's also an impossibility. I I think Mm -hmm. I I learned so much as a person and as a teacher during the pandemic, and I wouldn't want to lose that growth. So I I make sure that I actually now formally assess creativity. You know, Mm -hmm. as an art teacher, it's easy because we have portfolios and it's so much easier. But, you know, I also promote to other teachers in other disciplines to do that as well. One of the the side effects that I've noticed is that students have spent so much time on devices that Mm -hmm. their sense of connection interpersonally is just not the same. So even though I have students in school, they're always looking down at their computers and just not engaging in the same way. So, you know, I'm doing a lot more projects that are hands-on. You know, we just created a Rube Goldberg machine together. Yes. And it's like, you need to kind of do some of those hands-on making activities because it's exciting and it kind of gets people, you know, engaged in a different personal way. Yeah, that's such a good point. And so true that there's no normal or, you know, whatever it is, is not what we used to have. It's a new version of, I don't know, that we'll call it normal (laughs) or not. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, so many things that we don't want to revert back to. But you also bringing up the Rube 
Goldberg machine and just thinking about how you're sort of infusing ideas about engineering and math. You have written an incredible book called Steam Power, Infusing Art into Your STEM Curriculum. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Maybe share if you have any sort of favorite little tidbits from the book. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. You know, I I wrote the book in part because I was so irritated all the time (laughs) and not seeing art respected. I I would go to these workshops that said STEAM and they just wouldn't address art in any kind of way. And and then I I would even do these programs. For many years, I've worked with uh, companies like Adobe and I had been at a couple of workshops with big companies that I won't name who kind of like put the idea of STEAM down and said like, well, everyone wants to add into STEM. And I, I just felt that art had a place in steam that was real. So I Mm -hmm. started the book with my sense of why art belongs in STEM learning. Mm -hmm. And I made a point of talking to scientists and I talked to NASA engineers and I talked to people in all these different disciplines to get their take on it as well, because I understand that as an artist, obviously I have a skewed point of view. (laughs) But, you know, I think Leonardo da Vinci is the best example of Mm -hmm. a steam person because authentically he just was a master of all these disciplines. So it's basically a look at how I have taught for many, many years, even before I was aware of the acronym STEAM. Mm -hmm. And I included 18 of my favorite projects, things from working with cardboard to working with virtual reality. So it handles tons of different technology, but also the mindset that really helps create great STEAM work and some of the things that really elevate that STEAM work after you start making it. Things like collaboration and Mm -hmm. authenticity. So I I meant it as a gift. I I believe in sharing as an art teacher that I'm not just teaching the students that are in my classroom, but, you know, anyone around me. So I'm I'm really just giving away some of the work that I've done over the years that's been working for me in the book. and, And that was the purpose. Yeah, beautiful. And I so agree that art is really like fundamentally part should be part of this idea of STEM. And, you know, even just the way that a scientist or an engineer, or even a mathematician, like anybody working in those fields approach a problem is very similar to how an artist would approach a problem. Like we work with the same sort of processes, we research, we observe, we experiment, all of these things are part of the art process. That's unbelievably true. I mean, in my research, it was amazing to, you know, it was so nice to talk to someone from NASA who was so on board with the same way of thinking that I had. And then I found out, you know, that NASA hires artists right out of art school as creative technologists to sort of help with some of the creative problem solving that they have to do. And, you know, things like the Mars helicopter that just took its first flight on Mars, but they had to sort of fold it up using origami techniques in order to fit it on the rover. And, you know, art is such an important part of the science that you're doing. And, you know, what better example is there than that? So the scientific process and the creative process are so closely aligned that (laughs) it's silly to think that they should be separated. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a really wonderful podcast that's pretty well known. So maybe you already know it, but I love 99% Invisible. (laughs) Yes. That's, you know, just talking about how I guess the title comes from the idea that everything in our world is designed, like there's some design behind everything that, you know, and 99% of that design is invisible. You don't really think about it because it's so well designed. Absolutely. And, you know, like that's a great podcast for teachers too, just because, you know, like he has an amazing episode on design of flags Mm. that inspired me to try to have my students redesign our town's flag. So we Mm. use some of his methodology and the students all design flags. And then we use augmented reality to show what it would look like in town hanging from the flagpole. So there's so many amazing episodes that really could be great introductions to lessons. Yeah, that's a great point. And I love that you're having them design and think through these ideas, but then to add that layer of like, well, let's see what it would look like and bring in the technology to do that is really exciting and almost professionalizes it. Yeah, no, no, I I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, I always try to push the class project to the next level and Mm -hmm. make it real because, you know, I don't know that the town is actually going to accept any of our flags, you know, but (laughs) we don't need that to happen. We could just use technology and show that and make that real. And what I have found is when you reach out to the community and you involve them in some of these projects, those things do go to the next level. Like currently we are working on creating murals for the storm drains in town. 
mm. to help educate the community about where the, the runoff water goes, which is right back into our drinking supply. So, you know, it's kind of amazing when you have these projects that go beyond the classroom and extend. And using technology is one of the ways that I've managed to bridge that gap because you're able to visualize results before they happen. So it's pretty amazing. And that's just a great skill also to share with students if they're anybody who's considering a career in design of some sort, like it's all about mock-ups and showing what your idea would look like in that setting. Yeah, as, as an artist, one of the things you learn early is that not everyone has the same ability to visualize and imagine mm-hmm. results. So, you know, it's all about really communicating your creative ideas and mm-hmm. technology is a, a terrific tool. And it's nice to go through the actual process with students. Plus the other advantage is, but so much more engaging when you do something that you feel is meaningful and can actually make a change in your community. You know, it matters Mm -hmm. both to the students, but also it becomes this thing that educates the whole community about what's happening in the art room. And I think as an art teacher, part of your role is really always sharing what's happening and why art is important for the larger community. Yeah, always being an advocate. Right. And thinking a little bit more about just, you know, we talked about what we don't want to go back to normal. I feel like we as a country are waking up to a lot of the really large systemic problems that have been around for a long time and maybe taking steps in the right direction. And I've talked a lot here about just how we're handling decolonizing the curriculum and trying to be anti-racist in the classroom and what those words even mean, what they're loaded with. So I'd love to just hear your thoughts about all of that. It's, you know, huge topic. Yeah. And, and it's so interesting. You know, the last art piece that I did before the pandemic was for the Norman Rockwell Museum, and it was based on the Four Freedoms. Mm. And it ended up being really timely <laughs> because it was the anniversary of the Four Freedoms. So, you know, I did a video installation and I interviewed 50 different people about what the Four Freedoms meant to them today. Mm. And I intentionally interviewed a, a wide variety of different viewpoints and, and ages of people. So I wanted a really wide demographic to get a interesting perspective from all different angles. And it was really informative to see some of the varying viewpoints in my own community that were surprising. So I find that I have always worked collaboratively with groups around the world. So there's uh, a natural ability to consider other people's viewpoints and to understand different cultures and to be more mindful of race and ethnicity and gender and all of these elements. And, you know, it was through doing an art project that 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 taught me that, you know, that is not necessarily everyone's point of view. So it was really interesting. Mm. And the work traveled along with Norman Rockwell's pieces for two years to different museums, which was amazing. So I had a chance to see the different reactions to the work in different places, Mm. which was also really interesting. And I think it's not just our country, but the world is at a really interesting turning point right now. And I think the pandemic probably intensified this because there's so much more emotion involved, understandably. I think contextualizing it could be difficult in the classroom because I want to give students an opportunity to share their point of view, but also value everyone's different perspectives and understand the importance of different points of view and perspectives. It's interesting because I I work in a fairly conservative community, and I always see it as a great thing being an art teacher in a conservative community because you get to help many students find their way and understand that there's other ways of thinking and other perspectives. Mm. You know, I think art is a language and it allows you to communicate really with the world. And, and that's always what I find most interesting about the medium is that you're able to communicate these messages. So, you know, we make a point of looking at art from all different cultures and all different people and understanding those different perspectives. Yeah. You know, you touched upon how the pandemic has exacerbated the inequalities or inequities that were already there. And also the idea that our emotions are also heightened during this really difficult time for so many people. I've also been hearing from a lot of 
teachers who do like you work in a more conservative district or town or state or, you know, wherever they are, that they're feeling like, well, I can't really bring up topics of, you know, social justice super directly without parents, students even, maybe even admin saying like, what are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) So I'm curious because I'm here in my little bubble in Los Angeles. (laughs) (laughs) I would love if you have any advice for those people. How do you bring in these topics? And I mean, I guess you touched on it a bit, but maybe if you could talk about just, yeah, how would you bring up topics of social justice or looking at current events and really looking at, at events with a critical eye, looking at even events in history with a critical eye. Yeah, you know, it, it's such an interesting thing when you're in a conservative community because you have to be aware that everything that you you say and do will be potentially taken the wrong way. So you have to, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're sort of a little bit on guard all the time, and mm-hmm. I, I think that's okay. It's a challenge. You know, one of the things about teaching is that it's an everyday activity. So you're teaching all the time. And, you know, after 22 years of teaching all the time, it's like there's no way you could, you don't want to be on the defensive Mm -hmm. as as an educator. So I just choose to be open and honest. And I think that is the more empathetic approach. And I share my process as an artist and I share my process as a person. So Mm -hmm. one of the things that I really believe in is travel. And going to different places and seeing the ways that different people live and respecting people everywhere. And I think that it's really hard for anyone to argue against just having respect for the way that different people choose to live. Mm -hmm. So I stand by that. I stand by supporting our environment and Mm -hmm. making sure it's a place that people can continue to live for many years. Mm -hmm. And even though some of these things may cause some small controversies in the community sometimes, as an educator, I am informed. And I think that it's important to share the learning, not just with the students in your classroom, but with the community and with the world. I mean, that's the magic of social media as well, is that, Mm -hmm. you know, these conversations are happening around the world. And I think that's really important. And history offers us an amazing context of Mm -hmm. different perspectives and and how they played out over time. And it's not a matter of like right and wrong answers. Mm -hmm. But I think that being empathetic towards other people and being understanding and accepting is something that I'm always proud to support, regardless of the, the point of view of people that might attack that. Yeah. And there shouldn't be a divide along political lines when you're just talking about being empathetic, caring about, you know, (laughs) people that aren't exactly like you. (laughs) Yeah, it seems crazy. I know. Yeah. Mm. You know, but especially as an artist, I think that art is this thing that comes from the soul. And when you look back at different civilizations, it's the art that we look at more than anything else. Mm -hmm. So it, it is a record of our humanity. And there have been cycles that have happened over time that have been really damaging to humanity. And I think that we don't want that to happen again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've heard the idea that artists are like the canaries in the coal mine, that we're the warning signal. And that connects so well to this idea of being like a record of our humanity. It's a beautiful idea. I also love what you said about teaching is an everyday activity. That's true. (laughs) It's not like you have just this one moment to really connect with your students and make a difference. It's nope, all the time. Just be yourself, be honest, be vulnerable. Yeah, I, I think especially be vulnerable. I think that's especially important. You know, I teach high school, and it's such a difficult time for people. And Especially as a man, I think it's important to show that Mm -hmm. it's okay to be vulnerable and it's okay to be emotional and it's okay to be creative because we face a lot of gender stereotypes. And Mm -hmm. I certainly know that like I felt uncomfortable sharing some of those parts of myself. And it's like, I don't want my students to have to go through that same struggle. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to share your failures. I think it's important to share your insecurities and your vulnerabilities in a reasonable way, especially when you could show how you have persisted and grown because of that sharing and because of that knowledge. Yeah, yeah, that's so important. And it can be so helpful to be able to model that vulnerability. Absolutely. Yeah. listeners, I'm jumping in here because I have an ask of you. If you are enjoying the show, I would so appreciate your support. 
I'm humbled and grateful for all the interest in this show over the past several months and for the messages I've received letting me know that this podcast has resonated with you. It has been so inspiring to hear from you. Thank you. This podcast does take time, effort, and resources to share with you every week. And I want to, I plan to, keep it going and stay focused on highlighting and inspiring artists who teach, while also continuing to grow this community and dreaming up additional ways to help you. One way to accomplish this is through direct listener support. Your support would really help the show and community grow. So I've set up a link where you can quickly and easily support the show. The whole thing will take less than 60 seconds. It's at anchor.fm slash teaching artist podcast slash support. You can contribute one, five or $10 per month. If Teaching Artist Podcast is a part of your week and you love what we're doing, please consider visiting anchor.fm slash teachingartistpodcast slash support, or just clicking the link in the show notes and supporting us in any way that you can today. Thinking more about your artwork, I know you've talked a bit about it. Maybe if you could describe your work for someone who hasn't seen it. Yeah, that's, that's difficult. <laughs> I know, it's really hard. <laughs> I've always had a sketchbook my entire life. So, you know, in high school, I didn't really understand how to use it. I'd have like seven pages and then like 20 blank pages. But, <laughs> you know, I found that as I've grown, I now do like a sketchbook a month and I've done it since maybe... 2007, I used to digitize some of them and put some of them up on the web. So, you know, that's the place where all the ideas sort of begin. And then the medium changes depending on the project. So I would sort of think of myself as a conceptual artist because, you know, the ideas are what would drive the work in a lot of ways. It's been things like one of my earlier art projects that was notable was I was driving every day out to the Hamptons on Long Island to take an art class. And I was stuck in traffic every day. And I thought like, you know, this is an opportunity to show artwork. So I just started hanging mm. art on the side of the road. Ah. So I started putting up signs and artwork along the side of the road. And I wasn't aware that I was sort of doing this guerrilla art project. But then I started noticing <laughs> photographs of the works and they showed up in the New York Times and they showed up in... Ah some, you know, coffee house books. And I'm like, well, I never understood, even though I had so many contacts in the art world, it seemed to be a, a place that was sort of difficult to penetrate. And here was an opportunity to show work in a really informal way that really affected many people. So you were able to have this audience. You know, I've since continued to work in galleries and museums and things like that with other pieces, but I still like doing art for the people in that sort of everyday mm -hmm. way. So I, I make a point to do some work like, I, you know, I'm doing a piece now with QR codes um, in my local town that are sort of hidden mm. that will turn into art pieces and things like that. So, I, you know, I, I like that balance between, you know, work for the people and then work for the art world. But in terms of medium and video and, and mixed media and performance art, you know, and that's part of a result of teaching because you're working in so many media that you're thinking in so many media. So <laughs> that's mm -hmm. the, the reality is like, if I'm teaching about video, I'm going to start working in video. And if I'm doing painting, then I'll start thinking in painting. So, you know, as a result of being a teacher, I end up working in all these different media. But, you know, I also realized in hindsight that these sketchbooks were really interesting artworks themselves because they were sort of complete pieces that told a, a really interesting visual story. So, you know, it's an eclectic uh, array of work from film and animation to emerging media, like I'm, I'm working now with AR and VR and things like that, mm. but also some traditional media. And I've written some plays and I've done sort of these performance art pieces with video. And like, basically, the more I work as an artist, the more I merge together these different media into like an amalgam mm. of various creative things into one piece. So I'm now working in video and performance with some emerging technology as well at the same time. Amazing. And have you done the Brooklyn sketchbook project? I don't remember <laughs> what exactly it's called. <laughs> yeah, the, the sketchbook project. Yeah. Yes, yes. 
Yeah, many times. Uh, love they're, it. They're, they're terrific people. So yeah, I, I started doing it myself as an artist, and I did one or two sketchbooks. And now every year I do one personally, and then I do one with my class. So we do it oh, awesome collaboratively. So each student, we'll come up with a theme together. So like one year we did the telephone game. And you know, so I started the first page, and then someone had to pick something off of my piece of art that inspired theirs. So it's this sort of like long telephone game of inspiration. Ah. So it's so much fun because, you know, their work gets shown. And the actual gallery, the Brooklyn Art Library in Brooklyn is fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's this great place you can go and just pull out, you know, 20 sketchbooks and look through ah. all these different, you know, points of view. And you're you're entering these different worlds. And they've been really supportive of what we've done as well. So, you know, the, the, the people that run it have been terrific. So we always stop there on field trips when field trips existed. <laughs> <Yeah>. Right. <laughs> but luckily they do have a digital library that's really terrific. Yeah, I haven't done it yet, but it's on my like wish list. I need to just do it. <laughs> One of my favorites is they had a couple of years ago, two years ago, I think they had a mini sketchbook that was really tiny. Mm. And that's sort of, it was a bigger challenge because it was so small, but they sent those works around the world. So they went to France and I think England and a couple other places all mm. in a suitcase. So we started making our own mini sketchbooks after that just because it was a really interesting challenge to work that small. Yeah. Whenever I've had a sketchbook, I'm not good about keeping up a sketchbook practice, but I love the idea of you sort of starting the first page because for me, that's always super intimidating. I usually actually (laughs) leave the first page blank, like I skip ahead. Because I'm like, I can't start like, it's almost the same idea as a blank canvas. Like, what do you do? Oh, no. (laughs) That's so funny. You know, I I do the same thing. And I actually tell my students to skip the first two pages and then Mm -hmm. to put in art that looks like what it looks like, you know, (laughs) traditional looking art, because most people want to look at your sketchbook, but they may not be artists and might not understand art. So I always Mm -hmm. do like, you know, a portrait or something that's very traditional for the first two pages. So I don't have to answer a lot of questions, (laughs) (laughs) you know, because it's like, all right, because they're really, you know, most people's idea of art is drawing. So, you know, they think Mm -hmm. drawing and, and they assess the quality of the artist by the amount that you could actually render something realistically. So mm-hmm. it's a it's a very simplistic way to look at it. But I always put like one or two realistic renderings in the first two pages and then just explode with creativity after that. Yes. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I was just mentioning to someone that I was doing this collaboration with my daughter and their first question was like, oh, what was it a painting <laughs> of? And I'm like, um, it was abstract. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It can be a really difficult conversation sometimes with people Mm -hmm. because even if we're talking about artists like Picasso, you know, it's important to show his work when he's 15 because it's like at that point he had really already mastered being able to realistically render things. It just wasn't Mm -hmm. very interesting any longer. So, right, yeah, it's always important in high school to show that kind of work. You know, so Mondrian's Mm -hmm. paintings of trees before it became just blocks of color because yeah. For some reason, we just traditionally go back to that same very simple idea of what good art is. Like, you know, can you render something realistically? Yeah. And I see a connection back to what you were talking about with kind of breaking into the art world. And I just love that you created something for sort of a captive audience, (laughs) people (laughs) stuck on their commute. (laughs) But just how that really opened things up for you and sort of continued this practice of creating art outside of the art world, but then also continuing to kind of push your way in. And yeah, I feel like maybe it's helpful to talk about how you're doing that. Like what sort of opportunities are you seeking out? Where are you finding them as sort of advice for other artists that are trying to do the same thing? Yeah, my dream was always to at some point make it as an artist and be able mm-hmm. to stand on two feet. What does and, that mean? <laughs> and, and exactly. And yeah, what yeah. Is, like what does making it as an artist look like today? I mean, you know, yeah. And and that's sort of the funny thing is that we have some of these traditional ideas that still live within us and we're we're not always super aware of it. Mm-hmm. Right. So my main goal when I make art is to express myself. My my secondary goal is to communicate. So I want an audience for my work. One of the realities that I learned is that there's only a limited audience that really goes to galleries and, and museums. So I found that the show that I did in a local restaurant mm-hmm. was seen by so many more people than a local gallery. I think it's important to show work in all different kinds of places, as an educator especially, because you're you're actually educating people 
people about what art is as mm -hmm. well. So when I exhibit art, I focus on galleries or museums that have sort of a like-mindedness. Mm -hmm. So especially as someone that works in a lot of new media, I find that not everyone is used to dealing with that type of technology or not necessarily set up for it. And so I tend to gravitate towards uh, places that are. And I live mm -hmm. in New York, so there's so many arts organizations and galleries and museums here that it's really easy to see uh, amazing art, mm -hmm. even during the pandemic, which is great because it's like, I was so thankful that there were local sculpture gardens and outdoor mm -hmm. artworks and uh, works like that sort of gorilla piece I did on the side of the road. That kind of thing is more important now than ever because people mm -hmm. are, even if you're going to museums, it's a limited number of people at a time and that's just a, a very small audience. So I think that art is an expression and I feel like me being honest with how I'm feeling during this period of time and some of the struggles that I've had and some of the, the learning that I've had and the growth I've had, sharing that mm -hmm. out with people creates an interesting conversation. So I've done a lot of work just in my local town and that's been terrific. So we opened our exhibit Rise and we have one of your video poems there. And yeah, I loved how that piece really spoke to this sort of pandemic experience and kind of goes through these words like still waiting and that's <laughs> the one that really stuck out to me this sort of limbo that we've been in that we're still in to some extent yeah and i've done a lot of video poems over the years and the mediums and the technology i've done them with have changed so this was created in procreate just because I've worked so much digitally over the last uh, couple of months mm -hmm. because I'm just living with my iPad. <laughs> so yeah. I created almost all of it just on the iPad. And I came across the show through social media. And I think social media is such an amazing tool mm -hmm. because that's such a great way to find great art that's happening. And the show really is terrific. It's really interesting to see. I mean, the the concept of rise and sort of like the there's a sense of rejuvenation and growth and coming out of this very difficult and dark time that people interpreted really eclectically. Mm -hmm. That is really interesting. I, I think that after every really difficult event, there's a explosion of interesting creative work that happens. So, mm -hmm. you know, you could certainly see some of that in the show for sure. Yeah, it was exciting for us to see just all the things that emerged, the themes that came out of it and things that we weren't even really that weren't on our radar that we weren't thinking about. It's been exciting to get into this sort of digital world as a curator. And that's one thing I feel like I don't want to go back. Like I, I've had this idea, like I curated a show back in college when I had, I convinced the school to give me a space. But since then, it's been something like I've always wanted to get into curation and struggled with the physical space not being available or accessible, or like I couldn't afford to hire out a gallery. Right. So moving online and working with more emerging technologies, it's very exciting. And I love this idea of even also bringing AR and VR into these curatorial ideas moving forward. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, mm. there was a work I saw at the Dali Museum that's done with Dali's artwork that was in VR. That was the mm -hmm. first time I really saw an artwork that was fully immersive, that was mm. really art. And then after that, I had seen it at uh, a number of art fairs in New York City. I think it's really the future. I think mm -hmm. having the physical space is a little bit uh, of a traditional way to appreciate art, but you're able to do so much with a virtual space. Mm -hmm. And you could just see how important that will be in our future, especially as an educator. Every teacher was forced to be a technology teacher in the last year, right. whether they wanted to or not. So once schools invest in that technology, they're not going to not use it any longer. So mm -hmm. you can be sure that technology is part of our future. There's no way to avoid that. So you should really just embrace it. And, yeah. and I think the art world does the same thing because you're able to do so many different things in a virtual mm -hmm. space and show work in different ways. And I'm always interested too, having a curator's point of view changes the way you see artwork a little bit, I would think. I certainly know from having so many students in AP art classes and helping them curate their own work and putting together mm -hmm. shows that it informs your work as an artist and, and it gives you a more critical eye and you understand work differently. So it's great to see you branch into that world uh, and take it on. Yeah, it's been 
exciting. And I feel like it also helps with the the many, many rejections that I get as an artist. <laughs> I have a better understanding of because even this show, like where I was a co-curator and we sort of argued a bit about what work was going to be included. And we went back and forth about what number I was like, can't we just accept everyone? <laughs> you know, They're all so good. So just knowing that the behind the scenes there, that it's 99.9% of the time your work was not rejected because it wasn't good enough. Like there's so many factors that go into it. Yeah, that's so important because it's like as an artist, that's the one unfortunate reality is that you, you need to deal with rejection. And we tend to be, mm-hmm. we're putting our emotions out there often like on yeah. canvases or in our work. So my instinct is to take everything personally all the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> So once you change that hat and you do any work as a curator, you understand that like maybe it just doesn't fit with the body of work that's happening or you could understand not to take things personally. And that's really helpful. And I I try to actually pass that on to students and have them curate work Mm -hmm. so they have a better understanding of that because we, we do tend to be sensitive as artists and dealing with rejection is one of the hardest lessons we learn, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. And I love that idea of sharing that experience with students and giving them a little bit of being on the other side, because even now I still struggle to not get emotional and not get upset. <laughs> like Sort of this ongoing battle. <laughs> uh, me too. I feel you. <laughs> Yeah. And then even just the idea that every curator is different, like sometimes I'll get a rejection and then I see the show come out and I'm like, oh, but I don't like this work that's in the show, <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you actually learn as an artist to pay more attention to the curator than the institution in reality, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, a, a gallery may have one reputation, but whoever curates the show is what the show becomes, you know? So you, right? you learn more about curators and their roles. And it's really interesting to to get that perspective, just like as a educator, maintaining the student perspective is important and understanding what it's like mm-hmm. to be a student. And I'm still taking college classes and, and different mm-hmm. things. And like you understand good teachers from bad teachers and what works mm-hmm. and what doesn't. I think as an artist, understanding the curatorial point of view, and there's often a, a commerce angle as well in, in mm-hmm. galleries. And that adds a whole different, really important context, depending on if galleries need to sustain finances in order to continue doing their work. And, you know, like, that's one of the funny things I was talking to my students about NFTs recently. Mm. And it brings up a thousand questions because part of the understanding about the art world is also the prices paid for art and what impact that has and and quality. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's not necessarily always equal. Right. Yeah, I feel like I'm still wrapping my head around this NFT thing, but I love the idea of artists getting royalties on work as it's sold later on that has been something that exists in almost every other creative field. Like that happens with music, with books, you know, why is that not something in the art world already? (laughs) Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. So that I feel like is really incredible with this NFT thing. I managed to make one, but it hasn't I don't know really what I'm doing. So <laughs> it exists out there. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that like every artist now has to figure out how to make an NFT and then what, uh-huh. what do you do with it? Yeah. Right. And, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I do see some of my friends who are artists selling a number of works, but it, it does feel like I have to do this quickly before this fad ends. So right. I, I don't know. Uh. The future of NFTs, it it feels like when things come on this strongly, they tend not to last very long. So Mm -hmm. it's hard to really assess the long-term reality of this kind of work. But it is interesting. I mean, again, this is part of emerging technology. You have these changes and what impact they have in the long run is always an interesting question. Yeah, definitely. And I would love to hear because you've talked a little bit about the commerce side. I'd love to hear whether you're selling work and what that looks like. And if you have any advice to share around sales and selling your work. Yeah, in a weird way, I didn't feel successful as an artist until I sold work. And I think that's because you don't realize that you have sort of that traditional idea of art in in your head. But Mm -hmm. I I began sort of selling work, working as an illustrator. So Mm -hmm. I I would sell illustrations to magazines locally, and I do illustrations. 
And that was really an interesting experience. And then it also taught me how you have to work both as a creative person and then suddenly as a financial manager, which is much more difficult. (laughs) Right. And understanding pricing and getting Mm -hmm. the value out of your time and things like that. I I did love having work seen by so many people because that's one of the advantages. Mm -hmm. In In a real sense, that's one of the greatest advantages of having written a book is that you don't know who out there happens to read it. You pour yourself into 150 pages and then it's sort of a surprise to get something on your Instagram page of someone who happened to read it in the middle of the country who you'd never expected. So (sighs) it's really an interesting experience. And then I have sold some of my pieces and I have had some performances and things like that that have sold. But I find it to be a bit of a challenge. One of the real benefits of being an art educator is that I don't need my art to sustain myself. Right. So it allows me to be more of a connoisseur in terms of what projects I take that are commercial mm-hmm. and uh, what work gets sold. One of the things I learned from a lot of my professors in art school is that really who you're selling work to is as important Mm -hmm. as the price that you're getting for it because a lot of people collected their work and those people became champions for them that helped elevate them as an artist and I think Mm -hmm. it's more a, a point of actually finding people who are going to take care of your work and help move it forward and really appreciate it than anything else. Yeah, that's such a good point that the collector can maybe not make or break, but they can really be instrumental in in moving your career forward as an artist. Yeah, it's really interesting. There's a couple of great programs for art educators. So mm-hmm. SCAD has one that's a summer program. SVA has one in New York City. There's a terrific one in Chicago. And in some of these programs, they'll bring in contemporary artists who will talk about not just their artwork, but also their art collections, because a lot of Mm. artists obviously collect work. And it's so interesting to see what work artists collect and the story that that tells too, because Mm. the way that people collect is really interesting. Like there's a terrific documentary on these two New Yorkers who never spent a lot on artwork, but they had this tremendous collection uh, of artworks in their small New York apartment. Yes. And they were teachers or librarians something. Like they had not the high paying job you assume a collector is going to have, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's amazing. Yeah. They put together this just tremendous body of work, like this mm-hmm. tr- terrific collection of work on like a blue collar salary in mm-hmm. their small apartment that was like, it, it shows you what you could do as a collector, even without a huge financial background. Yeah. And do you collect work? Have you been collecting? Yeah, I, actually, I do. I should. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I have a couple of rules. So I try not to spend over $500 on anything. Mm-hmm. And I try to collect work. So I have to really love the work mm-hmm. and support the artist. I have uh, works from Swoon and Wayne White uh-huh. and John Bergerman. So these are all contemporary artists that I really love. Yeah. And there's local people like Tara McPherson. So it's really nice. I have uh, a small house, but art is a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I love the idea of the artist as the collector. Yeah, and it's really a reality too. I mean, that's one of the nicest things about getting to visit an artist studio is to not just see how they work, but to see what art they have as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been trying to build up my own collection of other people's work. And I feel like a lot of it is also through trade, which is one of the great things about making art that you can trade it for other art you didn't make. Yeah, absolutely. And and we do that a lot even in school. So like I wouldn't mm-hmm. feel right buying students work necessarily, but you know, we do have a, a bartering system where the students leave, uh, they leave one piece of art to the school mm-hmm. that we put and display so that you can kind of see this nice tradition of mm-hmm. all of these artists that have gone off to art school and the art world. And then we have one piece that kind of represents them. Nice. Yeah, that's beautiful. Okay, sort of wrapping up, what are you curious about right now? Oh, I'm curious about so much. I mean, currently, I know. <laughs> currently, <laughs> I, I have, I'm creating art in virtual reality right now. And that's mm-hmm. really interesting 
dynamic and unlimited sort of space. Mm -hmm. So using the tilt brush was about the most fun I've had making art with any technology ever because you're in the piece of artwork that you're making, which is such a unique experience. Mm -hmm. So I'm always interested in where this goes and how to push this further. So Mm -hmm. having worked in mixed media, you're able to bring video and these 3D drawing and some paintings into this virtual space and create this environment. So it feels really immersive. And I like the idea that a person could potentially wear goggles and have this experience individually. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's what I'm exploring right now. And it's sort of this new world of possibilities, which is really exciting. Yeah, that is so exciting. Okay. A fun little question. What is your favorite food? Oh, my favorite food. (laughs) I'm going to say coffee and chocolate croissant, if that's Mm, okay. (laughs) So good. What I call the French breakfast. Yeah. Yes. uh, I could have that every day. (laughs) (laughs) Probably shouldn't. (laughs) I love that. And is there anyone that you'd want to thank or give like a shout out to? Oh, there's so many people. But I will give a a shout out to some of my fellow art teachers, Samantha Melvin, Don Mass, the Grundlers, and all of my friends on the ISTE Arts and NAEA Art Ed Tech Group Mm -hmm. who always support. It's so nice to have artist educators that you collaborate with and work with. But it's important to have colleagues that are like-minded. So Carrie Parrish and Jean Bjork and all of my friends of our teachers, it makes such a difference, you know, being a teacher of 22 years and being an artist, it's nice to be able to talk to people you can relate to. And, you know, the irony is that during the pandemic, you actually grow closer to these people because they're more available. Everyone's online. So it's been terrific. Right. Yeah, I love that. And where can listeners connect with you online? Well, I'm on social media at Tim Needles, and I have a Mm -hmm. website, timneedles.com. So I post daily on Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn, TikTok, Facebook, you name it. So I'm very Mm -hmm. established on social media and I share a lot of my process and my work. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tim. This was great. Thank you. Yeah. And a terrific podcast. Just listened to the most recent one this morning. It was terrific. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can reach me at Teaching Artist Podcast on Instagram or teachingartistpodcast at gmail.com. Who do you want to hear from? Please share your recommendations of teaching artists. And if you loved this episode, please subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow me. It really makes a big difference. Thank you. Thank you.